Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job chapter number 19, and of course, we are moving through the book of Job on Wednesday nights, and if you've been with us, you know that the uh, major uh, section, the middle section, the predominant section of the book of Job is this conversation between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and uh, they are going through, walking through these rounds. There's three rounds that they take where each one says something to Job, and Job responds to them. We are in the midst of round two, and Bildad just got done speaking in chapter 18, and in chapter 19, Job is responding uh, to Bildad. If you look at Job chapter 19 and verse 1, the Bible says this, then Job answered and said, and of course we've got his response here. And In this chapter, what we find is that Job kind of deals with uh, five different uh, subjects, and we'll walk through this chapter and I'll point them out to you. He begins by speaking about reproach, then he mentions responsibility, he talks about respect, he talks about revelation, and then he talks about the resurrection, and I'll point these out for you, but that's kind of our outline for tonight, and uh, I'd like you to notice here in verse number two, we begin with this, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write these things down, we begin with Job speaking about reproach, if you notice there in verse two, he says this, how long will ye vex my soul. The word vex means to annoy or frustrate. He says, how long are you going to annoy me? How long are you going to frustrate me? And then he says this, and break me in pieces with words. And what we see here is that Job begins by talking about the fact that his friends are reproaching him, and he's talking about the fact that they are using their words against him, and there is this wrong use of words that we often have, you know, in our daily lives when we speak to people, it is a very common thing. Hopefully it's not uh, a common thing in your life and in my life, but it's very common for people to use their words wrongly, to use their words in a negative way. And here Joe points out to us just two ways in which people do that. He says, the first one is this, We use our words wrongly when we use our words to cut people down. That's what he's referring to there in verse 2. He says, how long will ye vex my soul? And he says, and break me in pieces with words. Notice verse 3. He says, these ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. And the word strange there is not the, the way we use the word strange today. We use the word strange like if something's weird or something's odd. The word strange there is referring to something being foreign. And he's saying, you're, you're treating me like a stranger. Job is basically saying, I thought we were friends. You know, I, I, I thought you were my friends. I thought you were coming here to comfort me. But instead, you are speaking to me as though you don't know me. You're treating me as though I am a stranger. He says these ten times, you have reproached me and you break me down with words. And oftentimes what you find when people use their words in a negative way, they feel the need to cut someone down. You know, they may think, like Job's friends thought of him, that maybe you've just got too many nice things going on in your life. You've got too many positive things going on in your life. You've been blessed, you know, far too long. And it's their job to use their words to kind of cut you down to size, to put you in your place. But I will say this, whenever, because here's the truth, You know it, and I know it when we're doing this. 
you and I know when we are using our words, and you can try to spiritualize it, you can try to whatever you want to do with it, but you and I know when we are using our words as a tool, or I should say as a weapon to cut somebody down, and that is a wrong uh, use of our words. Then Job says this, not only have you used your words to cut me down, but he says you've used your words to magnify yourselves. Look at verse 4. And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. We're going to come back to that verse here in a minute. Verse 5. If indeed you will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach. And this is two things that go hand in hand. People often will try to cut you down and magnify themselves in the same process. They'll try to bring you, you know, put you in your place and tell you where you're wrong and why you're wrong and why you're worthless and why you're this and why you're that, and at the same time, magnify themselves. In fact, it's one process. They're bringing you down so they can bring themselves up. And here's all I'm saying. We use our words wrongly. We use our words in a negative way. Whenever we try to cut someone down in order to magnify ourselves. And look, the way, you know, the, the, the way that you should win, quote-unquote, in life is not by making everybody else seem, you know, terrible. I mean, look, I want to have a good marriage. I don't want to make it seem like I have a good marriage by cutting down your marriage and pointing out, you know, I don't win, right? I don't win in my marriage. I don't win... In my parenting, I don't win uh, as a pastor. I can spend, you know, my time on social media cutting down other pastors, putting other pastors in their place, you know, pointing out all the mistakes and all the problems and all the other ministries. I could do that, but honestly, and, and, and the only reason I would do that and the reason people do that is to magnify themselves, but at the end of the day, I still stink, Right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you got these pastors who, you know, they've been in ministry for like 20 years, and they can't get more than eight people to show up to hear them preach, so they decide that they're going to cut down everybody else who they think is succeeding or whatever, but you know what, at the end of the day, I'm still preaching to eight people, it didn't help me. Instead of spending my time trying to cut people down in order to magnify myself, why don't you spend your time just getting better? Why don't you spend your time just getting better at life? You know, you say, well, let me, let me point out all the problems in everybody else's marriage. That'll make me feel better about my marriage. Why don't you just try to be a better husband or a better wife? Let me point out all the problems in everybody else's parenting. That'll make me feel better about my kids being out of control. Why don't you just get your kids in control? Instead of cutting people down in order to magnify yourself, why don't you just stop worrying about everybody else and just work on yourself? Work on whatever it is that you've got to do in life. See, there's a positive way and there is a negative way to use our words. And it is always negative when we are cutting people down in order to magnify ourselves. And let me just say this. It is usually the case that we are cutting people down in order to magnify ourselves. Go to the book of Ephesians, if you would. You're there in the book of Job. Ephesians chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. The point is this. I can cut everybody else down on everything else, but if I'm failing in whatever area I'm trying to make myself better at, when I get done, I'm still failing. So it'd be better to just try to succeed. To try to better yourself. 
Become a better Christian. Become a better employee or employer. Become better at whatever it is that you are trying to do in life. There's a wrong way of using our words. Cut people down in order to magnify ourselves. And then there's a right way of using our words. Ephesians chapter 4. When you get to the book of Ephesians, do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 29. The Bible says this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And for those of you that have been here for any length of time, you've heard me teach this in the past, but when it comes to our words and the right use of words, there's three questions I like to teach. I've taught this to our children. I've taught it to our church family as well. It's good for the kids and it's good for the adults. And there's always three questions you got to ask yourself when it comes to your words. If you're ever curious or if you're ever wondering, am I using my words properly? Is my spirit right in this? Am I trying to cut somebody down in order to magnify myself, or am I actually trying to help this individual? Because I'm not saying that there's not a time or a place to correct somebody, to uh, uh, try to help somebody out. You say, well, how do I know if I'm doing it correctly? Well, there's three questions that you should really ask yourself, and they're all kind of found in this verse. The first one is this, is it true? I mean, the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. The word corrupt means with error or dishonesty, or in corruption, not pure. So the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Because honestly, most of the time, when we're trying to cut someone down in order to magnify ourselves, we tend to say things that are not true, or we tend to exaggerate things to a point where they're not really real. So you always have to ask yourself, you know, if you find yourself having to correct somebody, having to deal with something, having to use some words that might seem confrontational, you have to ask yourself, is it true? Because the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Then you have to ask this question, is it kind? Look at the last part of verse 29. That it, the word there, it's referring to your words that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So what does the word grace mean? Well, it means unmerited favor. Same thing that got you salvation, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. Well, he doesn't deserve me talking to him, or she doesn't deserve uh, me talking to her, or, or they don't deserve me. You know, well, last I checked, you didn't deserve salvation either. And if God can give you salvation by grace, then God says, make sure your words are with grace. Well, they don't deserve it. And the question is not, do they deserve it? The question is, is it kind? You've got to ask yourself, is it true? Is it kind? Then you've got to ask this question, is it necessary? Is it necessary? Notice again, verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Then he says this, but that which is good to the use of edifying. The word edifying means to build up. Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it something that's, that needs to be said because it's actually going to help the situation? So look, we understand that we sometimes have to correct those uh, that uh, are, are under our authority. It may be your children or maybe an employee. It may be uh, 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 whatever situation you find yourself in. You say, well, how do I know if I'm uh, doing it in the right spirit or if I'm just simply being one of Job's friends, trying to cut someone down in order to magnify myself? Well, you, you know, if you can answer these questions, is it true? 
true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? If you can answer all those with an affirmative, then you're probably good. And by the way, let me just say this. You need all three. It, it, it should, you know, well, what I said was true. Yeah, but you were a jerk about it. You know, you can, you can say the truth kindly. I think there's a verse about that, speaking the truth in love. I'm not saying that we don't confront sin. I'm not saying that we, not, uh, uh, that we don't earnestly contend for the faith. But look, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Do you really need to say that? Do you really need to bring that up? Is that really something that needs to be dealt with? There's the wrong use of words, and there's the right use of words. Keep your place there in Ephesians. Go back to Job if you would. The wrong use is when we use our words as a weapon to cut people down in order to magnify ourselves. The right use of words is when we use our words and we filter them through these questions. Is it true? It should always be true. Is it kind? We should always strive to be kind. And is it necessary? Will it edify them? Will it build them up? Will it help them? Or is it just me taking a jab? And then we see, secondly, tonight, not only do we see that Job speaks about reproach, but we see that Job speaks about responsibility. Notice verse 4. He says, And be it indeed that I have erred. Now, it's interesting because the entire book of Job, up to this point and after this point, Job maintains his innocence. His friends are constantly accusing him of doing something. Now, they've never actually told us what it is they're accusing him of. I don't know if you've noticed that. They keep saying, Job, you've done some grave sin. You've done some horrible thing. You did something to really upset God. This is why it's happening. They never actually told us what Job did. When Job points that out, they say, well, it must be something in your heart, something secret. And Job has maintained his innocence. And here in verse 4, Job plays the devil's advocate. And he's not admitting guilt, but he's saying, okay, well, let's say you're right. Let's say that I did do something. Let's say that I have some secret sin, some major thing I've done, and this is why these things are happening in my life. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, and be it indeed that I have erred. Now, he's not saying, I did err, I did sin. He's saying, be it. He said, let's, let's say that. If it's the case that I have actually done what you say I've done, then Job says this. And this kind of shows you that Job is an individual who is high on personal responsibility. He says, and be it indeed that I have heard. He says, if, 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 what, if what you're saying about me is true, if I've actually done the things that you're alleging that I've done, then he says this. Mine error remaineth with myself. He says, look, if I've actually done what you're saying I've done, if I've actually done what you're accusing me of doing, then you know what? Mine error remaineth with myself. He, said, he says, I'm the one that's going to have to deal with the consequences. I, he's going to tell us later on in the chapter, am the one who has dealt with the consequences. He says, I am the one that will be held accountable. I am the one who has been held accountable. And you see that Job, every once in a while, you hear people speak. My wife and I will often, you know, hear somebody say something and we'll say, that individual is high on personal responsibility. Some individuals are very low on personal responsibility. How can you tell the difference? 
when people don't take responsibility for their actions, for their errors? I mean, here we see Job. He's saying, I haven't even done what you say I've done, but if I have done what you say I've done, if you can convince me that I've done what you say that I've done, then my error remaineth with myself. He said, I'll take responsibility. I'll be held accountable for what I've done. Oftentimes you confront somebody with something they did wrong, and it's like, it's, it's everybody else's fault. It's my wife's fault. Right, Adam? Eve, she made me to sin. It's the people's fault. Right, Saul? It's anyone's fault. Except my fault. But here we see that Job is a man who's high on this idea of personal responsibility. And I will tell you this. The concept of personal responsibility has all about but died in our culture, in our society. Go to the book of Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 6. If you kept your place in Ephesians, right after Ephesians, you have the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. Let me show you couple of verses on this idea of personal responsibility. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 6 verse 4, the Bible says this, Paul said this, but let every man prove his own work. You know what people with personal responsibility do? And again, this is an issue that, that this is a major issue in our culture and our society today. Uh, just not that long ago, I preached a whole series called Passing the Buck um, on, the, on the subject of personal responsibility. People who have high personal responsibility, they don't wait for someone else to bail them out, someone else to, to take care of it for them. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing, notice, in himself alone. You say, well, that sounds kind of selfish. Well, here's the idea. The idea is this. That if I make my own way, if I just prepare my own work, if I prove my own work, if I get out there and do it, then I can rejoice. And I'm not dependent on anybody else. I can rejoice. He says, rejoicing in himself alone. Notice, and not in another. This individual realizes that if it's going to get done, it's going to get done because I do it. Now, obviously, we understand that God helps and other people help us along the way. But look, it's fine for God to help. Obviously, God helps us along the way. It's fine for other people to be a blessing to you along the way. But you shouldn't be counting on it. Well, I'll succeed as long as Joe Biden, you know, comes through with all his promises. Well, don't, don't count on it. If he sends you a million dollar check, great. But don't count on that. Don't be dependent. He says... Let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. Moses 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. Every man will bear his own consequences. Every man will bear his own responsibility. Go to the book of Exodus, if you would, Exodus 21. You've got Genesis, then the book of Exodus, Exodus 21. While you turn there, let me give you a definition and an illustration. Let me define personal responsibility for you because this word responsibility sometimes is difficult to define. Or at least people act like it is. Responsibility or personal responsibility is the concept or idea of being accountable for your own actions and the actions of those under your authority. When you say, I am responsible... When you say, I am responsible, and by the way, all leaders need to say they are responsible. 
Leadership and responsibility go hand in hand. You cannot be a leader while dodging responsibility. When you say, I am responsible, husband, when you say, I am responsible, dad, when you say, I am the responsible, boss, when you say, I am responsible, what is that idea? It is a concept or idea of being accountable for your own actions and for the actions of those who are under your authority. I'll give you a personal illustration. This literally just happened last week. Last week, I was home. My wife was running errands in the evening or doing something. And um, I was home with the kids. And they were, they were it was an evening, actually. It was an afternoon. They were, the sun was out. And they were outside playing or whatever. And get a knock at the front door. And I looked through the little hole. And it's my neighbor, my next-door neighbor. I was like, I wonder what's, what, what he needs. You know, I opened the door. And he says, he was very, you know, just humble and, and, and not mean about it. He said, I, oh, you know. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you this. But he said, "I have some bad news." And I'm like, "What happened?" He said, "Ah, oh, the kids broke my window." And the, my kids were out in the backyard, and they're they're playing basketball, and the ball had gone over the fence, and they broke his window. And I'm like, "Ah, oh, man, I'm sorry," you know. And um, I, I waited for my wife to to get back, so I had the baby and whatever. And then we we went and took a look at that, and it was an accident, you know. We we've lived in this house for. I don't know how many years, 12 years, something like that. And we've had a basketball court in the back, in our backyard for, for years. We've never had a problem. But we recently started doing some work in our garage. And as a result of doing work in our garage, we got a bunch of stuff out of our garage and we built this little shed in our uh, backyard. And as a result of this little shed, we moved the basketball court to a different place and the kids were playing and the ball just went over, it hit the window in uh, the wrong place and it broke the window. You know, and he felt bad about it, but he had nothing to feel bad about. It was our fault. And I honestly, you know, don't think our kids did it maliciously or, 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 or anything like that. I was just an accident. You say, what do you, what do, you do? I apologized and paid him for this window. I mean, I, I said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I said, well, we'll, we'll replace your window. And, and I said, you know, I can try to call and find a guy. He says, I know a guy. He said, look, if you know somebody that you like and you trust to work on your home, just have him send me the bill. And he had them call me later that night, and I paid the guy. And uh, within 24 hours, that window was replaced. You say, why, why, why would you make sure it gets done in, in 24 hours? It's called, it's called personal responsibility. I mean, personal responsibility is saying I am accountable for my actions and the actions of those in my authority. Look, this is a concept found all throughout the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Exodus 21. We need this. Because today, you know what we have in America today? We have a bunch of people who dodge personal responsibility. That's why you've got so many kids being raised without a dad. Because they, they, they think they're grown. They, they're grown enough to go and, 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 and find a girl and, and, and have a physical relationship with a girl. But they can't stick around and, and take care of their responsibilities. Exodus 21, look at verse 18. Exodus 21, verse 18, the Bible says this, if, if, And if men strive together, and one smite another with a stone, or with his fist, and he die not, but keepeth his bed, if he rise again, and walk abroad upon his staff, the idea here is that one guy injured another guy enough to where this guy, you know, is, is, is injured. He's walking with a staff, then shall he that smote him be quit. Now, the word be quit there, those two words, would be like our word, he's acquitted, meaning he's not going to get in trouble 
because he didn't kill him. He's not going to get in trouble for murder or anything. He, he injured him bad enough to where he, you know, needed medical help, and now he's walking with a staff. He says, he will be quit. Notice these words. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. So what is that verse referring to? You know what it's referring to? Personal responsibility. You know, if you injure somebody to the point where they have, you know, they're, they're, they can't work or they've got medical bills, you know, responsibility, personal responsibility says, hey, I'll pay for that. I'll take care of that. This is what the Bible teaches. I could show you multiple verses like this throughout the Bible. I don't think it's time to do it. Look at, but look down at verse number 35. Not only is it for you personally, but it is for those under your authority. Exodus 21, look at verse 35. And if one man's ox hurt another's, that he die, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money of it, and the dead ox also shall uh, they shall divide. Or if it be known that the ox hath used to push in times past, and his owner hath not kept him in, what does that mean? He's been irresponsible. Notice, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead shall be his own. You say, what is this teaching? Here's what it's teaching. If you damage somebody's property, then you should be responsible enough. You're accountable for your actions. So, oh, no, it was my kids. Oh, right. Because that's what I'm supposed to tell a neighbor, right? Well, like, hey, you know, take it up with the 13-year-old. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, or it was my beast. No, you know what personal responsibility says? It says if you damage somebody's property, if you injure somebody, if you cause somebody uh, a loss of money, then you should pay for it. You should take care of it. You should uh, uh, deal with it. That's what responsibility is. And by the way, let me just say this. Our irresponsibility, see people think, oh, well, I'm just irresponsible. It's no big deal. There's no such thing as responsibility disappearing. Our irresponsibility simply becomes somebody else's responsibility. We try to teach our kids this. You can sit there and, and, and have your dirty clothes on the floor and just decide to be irresponsible and whatever. I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to take care of my dirty clothes. I'm just going to let it be. Those clothes aren't going to pick themselves up. They're not going to pick themselves up and put themselves in a dirty hamper. You know what's going to happen? Is that mom, you know, maybe dad, but most likely mom, is going to go and, 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 you know, if she doesn't beat you, if she's deciding to be graceful for a little while, she's going to go and pick those, that dirty clothes up and put it in a dirty hamper. And, and, and here's the lesson. Your irresponsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. See, when a man impregnates a woman and then chooses not to financially, emotionally, spiritually support those children, those children don't just disappear. Somebody pays to raise those kids. Your irresponsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. See, I could have been irresponsible and say, you know, stop calling the neighbors, stop looking at him, and you know, leave it alone. But he would have to pay to his places window. See, our irresponsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. So here's the application. You know, if, if your kids break somebody else's property, you should replace it. Kids in this church, I don't know if you guys know this, but they've got like a book smuggling organization going on. They're like constantly like, you know, switching out books and doing this and doing that. 
We're constantly telling our kids, if you let somebody borrow a book and they bring it back to you, you know, ripped or, or, or tattered or whatever, you leave that alone. That's, you know, when we let somebody borrow something, we are realizing that they might destroy it and we don't care. You know what? Relationships are more important than things. So on our end, if we let somebody borrow something and they don't return it, we let somebody borrow something and they damage it, we're not going to say anything about it. No big deal. Whatever. But if, we, if somebody lets us borrow something and you guys tear it, you're paying for it. You're buying them a new one. You say, why do you do that to your kids? To teach them responsibility. You know, if your kids break somebody else's property, you should replace it. If you injure someone to the point where they need medical attention, you should offer to pay for their medical bills. And look, let me just say this. We live in a sue-happy country. Everybody is suing everybody for everything. And I'm against it. I don't think it's godly. I don't think it's right. I don't think Christians should be going around being sue-happy. And you say, well, how do you know if you're sue-happy? If you've ever sued more than one person, you're probably sue-happy. I'm 35 years old. I've never sued anybody in my life. I've been sued by a bunch of sodomite reprobates. And, you know, the lawyers are just saying, do you want to counter-sue them? Do you want to count, you know? And I'm like, no, I don't want to sue anybody. Last thing I want to do is fight over money. You know, I'm against the sue-happy society, but I will say this. The reason that we live in a sue-happy society is because people lack responsibility. You know, it should never be said of you as a Christian that someone had to sue you Someone had to sue you to get you to take care of your responsibility. The neighbor had to sue you to get you to replace that window. You know, that should never be said of a Christian. We should be high on personal responsibility. We should have high levels of personal responsibility, which means what? It means that we take accountability for our actions and the actions of, our, uh, of, of those that are under our authority, whether it's your beast whether it's your kids, whether it's your uh, employees, you should be high on personal responsibility. Go back to Job 19. Look at verse 4. Job 19, verse 4. Notice again Job's responsibility. And be it indeed that I have erred. Mine error remaineth with myself. If indeed you will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, he says, know now that God hath overthrown me. He's saying, look, if I've sinned like you say I've sinned, then then hasn't God punished me enough? Know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my ways that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory. His glory is his renown or his honor, and taken the crown from my head. The crown is that which symbolizes authority. Notice verse 10. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone, and mine hope hath he removed like a tree. He hath hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he uh, counted me unto him as one of his enemies, his troops come together and raise up their way against me and encamp round about my tabernacle. Here's what Job's saying. Job's saying, look, if if I've done what you say I've done, then mine error remaineth with myself and all accept that punishment because Job is responsible. You know, and, uh, when it comes to comedy, see, it, it, it sometimes it stinks, right? I mean, a neighbor knocks on your door and all of a sudden I'm writing out a check for $250. They're like, I didn't put that in my budget. 
I've got windows I need replaced that I haven't replaced because I can't afford it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure his window gets replaced because it's personal responsibility. Job speaks about reproach. Then he speaks about responsibility. Thirdly tonight, like you know, Job speaks about respect. Notice verse 13. Job talks about the fact that he's being disrespected now that he has lost everything. Verse 13, he says this, He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. And again, estranged means that they've, they've separated themselves. They're like strangers. They're like foreigners. Verse 14, My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends, my best friends, my BFF friends, whatever that means, I don't even know. My familiar friends, notice, have forgotten me. They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. And I am an alien, again, just a different way of saying stranger, foreigner, in their sight. He says, he says people that I live with act like they don't know me. He says, my familiar friends, they see me out on the street and they, you know, turn the other way. My kinsfolks have failed me. My brethren are far from me. Notice verse 16. I called my servant. I called my servant. This is his employee. The guy that worked for him. He said, I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. Notice, not just his employees, it's also his wife. Verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife. He said, you know, my wife and I lack such a relationship at this point that my breath is like a stranger's breath to her. Though I am treated for the children's sake of my own body. Yea, young he says, young children despise me. I arose and they spake against me. That's like the curse of children from uh, Sunday night. Verse 19. All my inward friends abhorred me and they whom I love are turned against me. And Job talks about the fact that he's being disrespected now that he has lost everything. And here's kind of the application. Go, go to the book of Proverbs, if you would. Proverbs 19, you're there in Job, Psalms, then you have the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 19. And you know, the problem is that Job had a lot of fair-weather friends. He had a lot of friends that respected him because he was a big deal, because he was successful, because he was the big dog, because he had a lot of money. Proverbs 19 and verse 4 says this, Proverbs 19 and verse 4 says, Wealth maketh many friends, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. Let me tell you something. You start having a lot of money, you're going to figure it out real quick. You're going to have a lot of friends. You know what the prodigal son found out? While he had the inheritance, he was the man. The party was rolling and he was financing it. But as soon as that money ran out, so did his friends. Wealth maketh many friends. But the poor is separated from his neighbor. See, the truth is this. When you're going through a downtime in your life, you'll find out who your real friends are. Amen. And the lesson is this. We should respect people and not be a respecter of persons. Amen. We should respect persons, but not be a respecter of persons. Proverbs 28, look at verse 21. Proverbs 28, verse 21 says this. To have respect a person's is not good. For for a piece of bread that man will transgress. What does it mean 
uh, uh, to, to, to be a respecter of persons. It means that you respect people solely because of what they have. Look, that is a wicked thing to have. And look, we live, we live in the United States of America. This is just, you know, this is just the way the average American thinks. And unfortunately, it's the way the average Christian thinks. And I've, you know, done my best over the last 10 years to try to rewire the circuitry in your brain to hopefully you don't think this way. But let me tell you something. When you see somebody driving some impressive car and, and, and in your mind you've got more respect for them because of the car they're driving or the clothes they're wearing or the house they live in, you need to get right with God. Look, there, there should be nothing there should be nothing in you that has more respect for somebody because they live in a nice house, a nicer house, nicer part of town versus somebody who lives in a not nice house or they drive a nicer car. In fact, I'll let you live on a little secret. Whenever I see people driving junky cars, you know, I have more respect for those people because 99.9% of people that drive nice cars, are, they don't drive nice cars. They drive borrowed cars that they're paying interest on. Most people that live in that night, you know, when I walk into a nice house, I, you know, I say, oh, this is a nice house. And I think, I wouldn't want that mortgage. <laughs> oh, that's a nice car. And then I say, I don't want to drive that stinking thing. Paying $800 a month for a car payment? Must be a moron. <laughs> I'm not going to respect that. That's not going to earn my admiration. Some of you need to go home and sell a car. To have respect to persons is not good, the Bible says. Look, we ought not be impressed by stuff. God gives you stuff. God blesses you with stuff. Praise the Lord. Glory, glory to God. Amen. You know, you want to impress pastor, drive in with a nice car, and they say, hey, pastor, it's paid for. Cash. you be like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> hey, pastor, it's $889 a month. That's not very impressive. You know, you could have bought a used car. <laughs> anyway. Go back to Job 19. We live in this crazy society. We're supposed to respect people because they can dribble a basketball. We're supposed to respect people because they, they can run with a ball. My dog can run with a ball. I don't, I don't need to skip church on Super Bowl Sunday to watch. Wow, look at him. Roll with the ball. I got a dog that can do that. You know what impresses me? People that are godly. People that show up for soul winning. People that read the Bible. You know what impresses me? People that raise children that love God and love the Lord. That's what ought to impress you. The Bible says godliness with contentment, that's great gain. We need to rewire our brains from this crazy American philosophy that says things make us impressed. Ridiculous. Job 19, verse 20. Job 19, verse 20. He says, My bone cleaveth to my skin, and to my flesh I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. By the way, that's a phrase out of the book of Job that is used in common language. There's all sorts of phrases in the Bible that come out of the Bible that you didn't know came out of the Bible, but that's one of them. The skin of my teeth. Verse 21. Have pity upon me. He's telling his friends, have pity upon me, oh ye my friends. He's saying, if you're my friends, if you're really my friend, why don't you feel sorry for me? For the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with their flesh? Sometimes it is our job to judge. And we must judge, make righteous judgment, the Bible says. 
But we have to be careful to never put ourselves in the place of God. Joseph said to his brothers, he says, I am not in the place of God to judge you as though I am God. God will judge you. Here Job says to his friends, he said, why do you persecute me as God? And I'm not satisfied with my flesh. He says, hasn't God done enough to me? If, if, I, if I am who you say I am, I'll take responsibility for that. But haven't I suffered enough? Why do you have to add to it? Is what he's telling his friends. Look at verse 23. I said, number one, Job speaks about reproach. Number two, Job speaks about responsibility. Number three, Job speaks about respect. Number four, Job speaks about revelation. And of course, revelation is referring to the revelation of the word of God. In verse 23, he says this. Oh, that my words were written, were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. And next to this verse in my Bible, on the edge there, I've written these words, if he only knew. (laughs) Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. But he's talking about, he's talking about, and he's giving us a lesson on revelation, how God's word is revealed. Because, see, this is how revelation works in the Bible. Holy men of God spake, the Bible says. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. See, Job is being moved by the Holy Ghost. He's speaking, and then these words. Look, the Bible, the Bible was spoken first. Spoken for years before it was written down. That's why it's not wise to get in these King James arguments. And look, I'm King James only. We've always been King James only. We're never going to stop being King James only. But if you're going to make King James only arguments, you know, make King James only arguments that, are, that, that make sense. And it's not wise to get in these arguments about, you know, where the comma is or where the period is. Even, even spellings. You know, I've got certain Bibles, I like how it spells certain words or whatever. But you know, the Bible says that God's word was spoken. And when it was spoken, they're not giving you a spelling. They're just saying it. Obviously, language gets updated. And, and look, you say, well, well, the spelling change. Is it the same word? If it's the same word, then we're good to go. The Bible says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. It doesn't say by every word as long as it's spelled exactly how he spelled it when he said it. Well, did he spell it when he said it? Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. See, the word of God is spoken, then it is written, that's called inspiration, then it is preserved. And of course, it's called preservation. Psalm 12 and verse 6, if you, if you could turn there. Psalm 12, right in the center of your Bible. If you've got Job, you've got the book of Psalms right next to it. Job, Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. This is inspiration. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 119, 89 says this, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You don't have to turn here. Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It is God, it is God who is in charge of preserving his word. But Job teaches us something here about 
revelation. How does revelation work, work and, and the Word of God being revealed unto us? And obviously no one, the Word of God is done being revealed. It's been given. It's done. The book, there's a reason why the book of Revelation ends with don't add to these words. But how was it given? Holy man of God spake. It was first spoken. That's why you read in the book of, of Jude about you know, the words that Enoch spoke in the Old Testament. and The Word of God has always been on this earth. It was spoken, then it was written, and it, through those writings, of course, it's been preserved. Go back to Job chapter 19. Then Job speaks about the resurrection. And these are probably some of the most famous verses in the book of Job. Job chapter 19, verse 25. He says this, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. We have a song in the hymn book that quotes this verse. I know that my Redeemer liveth. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. See, you say, well, you know, Job, because look, Job, as far as we can tell, Job was pretty early in, in world history. I mean, uh, as far as we can tell, Job was probably living during the time when the children of Israel, the 400 and some odd years of the children of Israel were in captivity uh, in Egypt after the patriarchs, before Moses, while they're living in captivity as slaves in Egypt. This is probably the time that the life of Job is being played out. It's pretty early in, in history, and this is what I mean. You know, Job didn't have the book of First Thessalonians. He didn't have the book of Revelation. He didn't have the Olivet Discourse. He didn't have... Any of the Old Testament in the way that we know it, as far as the writings of Moses and, and, and the historical books and all that stuff. But yet Job throughout this book has been showing us, and even his friends have been showing us, that they have an understanding of doctrine, even end times prophecy. Because he says, for I know, I know that my Redeemer, and the word Redeemer is referring to someone um, that will save you. In the Old Testament they had this kinsman redeemer, someone that would redeem you from slavery and bring you out of bondage. He says, for I know that my redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He is referring to the fact Job does not know the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not revealed to the New Testament. But Job understands that the Messiah, the Christ, shall live and on the latter day he shall physically stand upon the earth. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the resurrection. Go to the book of Zechariah, if you would. Zechariah chapter 14, towards the end there of the uh, Old Testament, you've got the minor prophets, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. The Bible says this, Zechariah 14, 4, And his feet, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And this is a a reference to the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, Zechariah 14, verse 4. It's interesting because at the, during the first advent of Christ, the first time he came to this earth, they ask him a question about his second coming, about the end times and the things that will lead to the end times. And Jesus on the Mount Olivet, on Mount Olive, says, why don't you guys sit for a while? Let me explain to you what's going to happen in the end times. And he sits on Mount Olive, and he gives us what's known as the Olivet Discourse, where he explains 
all the things that are going to take place at the second coming or before the second coming and at the second coming of Christ. And then the Bible tells us in Zechariah 14.4, and his feet, when he comes back, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount Olive. When Jesus physically returns to this earth, he will land, the Bible said. The first time his feet touch this earth, they will touch the Mount Olive, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. The Bible says when Jesus returns, he will place his feet upon Mount Olive. It is going to split in half. And there shall be a great valley, the Bible says. A great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. I just think it's funny that Jesus chooses Mount Olive to... Let me tell you about the end times, guys. And then the Bible tells us he's going to land on that mountain and split it in half when his feet touch the ground. Job 19, look at verse 26. Job 19, verse 26. In verse 25, Job refers to the resurrection of the Redeemer, the Messiah, the, the, the Christ. We know him as the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they simply knew him as the Lord, as the anointed. He says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And then he says this, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, What's he referring to? His own death. He says, look, I know my Redeemer liveth. And I realize that one day I'm going to die. And I know that even those, what he's saying, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, he says, I know that even after I die and I'm buried, this body will corrupt, worms will eat this body and it will decay. He says, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So what is he referring to? He's referring to the resurrection. He's saying, I know, I know that I'm going to die and this body's going to get buried and worms are going to eat it. But here's what I also know. That because my Redeemer liveth, he says, even though my body is decayed, he says, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. What's he saying? He's saying, I know this body will corrupt, but will raise up incorruptible. I know that this mortal will die, but will rise up in immortality. Verse 27, he says, Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 15, we'll finish up. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. See, the... The doctrine of the resurrection is this, that if Christ raised from the dead, he will one day raise us up in the last day. That if, God, that if Christ resurrected, if I know that my Redeemer liveth, then I can also be assured, though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12 says this, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way. Look at verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen... Now, Paul's not saying that Christ is not risen. He's asking this question. It's a hypothetical. 
And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Paul is saying, and we could take the time to, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Christ. We could take the time to do it. We won't look at it tonight, but he's saying, Christ is risen. And that gives us assurance that we will one day rise with him. Even though your body gets consumed and destroyed, even though worms go after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold him, and not another. First John says that we shall behold him. It says that we shall see him, and we shall be like him when he comes back. Job 19, if you would, look at verse 28, we'll finish up. He says, but ye should say. Now, he started the chapter by telling us what his friends are saying. They're, they're just cutting him down, magnifying themselves, telling him how terrible he is. And then he ends the chapter by saying, here's what you should say. But ye should say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Here's what they're saying. Here's what, what he's saying. You should be asking yourself, why are you persecuting me? If, if I am everything you say I am, then isn't the root of the matter found in me? Aren't I the root of the matter? And again, Job speaking in these high personal responsibility statements. Then verse 29, be afraid of the sword. For wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. Jesus put it this way. With what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. See, this is why when it's time to deal with issues, and we must deal with issues from time to time, when it's time to correct somebody, when it's time to deal with stuff that happens, you know, we should always, and I've, I've tried to run our ministry this way, we should always try to lean on grace. Now, we don't hide things. We don't, we don't, we deal with things and, 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 and we, we, we try to be biblical. We also try to be kind and graceful. You say, why? Why would you do that? Because look, you can come down hard on whoever you want, but one day you're going to need, you're going to have somebody coming down hard on you. And it may be God. So why should I show grace to people? Because you're supposed to treat people the way you'd like to be treated? Because maybe someday I'll need somebody to show grace to me. Job says, but ye should say, why persecute we him? Well, Job, why should we say that? Because you should be afraid of the sword. For wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. He says, be careful about how you judge people. Be careful about making assumptions. Well, I know that there must be, I don't have any proof, I don't have any evidence about Job, but he must be. Hey, be careful about making assumptions. Because with what judgment ye judge, you shall be judged. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. That ye may know there is a judgment. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this chapter and uh, these lessons that Job teaches us about reproach and responsibility and respect, about revelation and about the resurrection. Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn them, take heed to them, understand them, and apply them in our lives wherever they're applicable. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.